0: We're continuing our look at Romans chapter 6 on Sunday mornings this summer. So if you're using one of the Bibles there in the pew rack, you can turn to page 943. This morning, we are considering verses 15 through 19, Romans chapter 6. Talking about the Christian's new life in Christ. Uh, we've seen in our first week, looking at the first 11 verses, that we have new life in union with Christ. Because of being united to Christ, we share in his death and his resurrection, and that is where our new life comes from. And because we have new life, we saw last week in verses 12 through 14 that we live differently, that we are new instruments. Next week, we'll close looking at verses 20 through 23 of Romans chapter 6, Lord willing, considering new fruit. Today, in our passage, we are considering our new master, our new master. Before I read God's word for us this morning, let me ask the Lord's help in prayer. Would you join me in prayer again? Our wonderful God This is your word. Help us, by your Spirit, to hear it, to read it, to mark it, to inwardly digest it, and to apply it to our lives, that we would be further conformed to the image of your Son, that the lost among us would hear the gospel and leave their sin and flee to Christ, Most of all, that you will be glorified in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 15 to verse 19 this morning. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Slaves of righteousness, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy inspired in an errant word, may he write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Many of you are familiar with Jesus' parable from Luke 15, the parable of what's commonly called the prodigal son. It's a wonderful story of God's free grace and his wonderful salvation, his receiving back of lost and wayward rebellious sinners. It's the story of a younger brother who goes to his dad and says, Dad, you're not dead yet, but you're pretty much dead to me, so give me my share of the inheritance, and I'm going to go live it up now. And Jesus says that the prodigal goes out to the far-off country, and he blows everything. And then he has to go into the service of a master, and he finds himself in the pig pen Longing to eat what the pigs eat. And it comes to him that here he is serving this master. But the servants of his father have it much better than this. And that prompts him to leave the pig pen and return home to his father. And he's gloriously surprised. His dad runs out to meet him. and Puts a new robe on him. Puts a ring on his finger. Kills the fadden calf and celebrates the son's return. And he tries to make his, his case that, Dad, you can receive me back as a servant. And he says, no, not as a servant. As a son, you're coming back into this house as a son. What a wonderful story. Now, what if spring break rolls around, and the son says, maybe I'll go back off to that far off country for a little while. After all, I've been restored. I've been freed. There's no condemnation. Let me go back and go see maybe some of my old buddies, see what they're up to, see what they're doing. What would you say if you caught that son trying to leave the father's house? You'd probably say what the apostle Paul here says several times in Romans 6, by no means, no way, don't do it. What are you thinking? Is this the reason for grace? I want us to see several things about the power of grace in our lives. In doing so, seeing how grace is a work of God that produces sanctification. Sanctification is conforming us to the image of Jesus. It's making us more Christ-like, more and more holy. So four things for us to consider from this passage this morning. In verses 15 through 16, I want us to see the analogy for sanctification. And then in verses 17 through 18, the agent of sanctification. The agent of sanctification. Then, kind of skipping to the end, and we'll look at the second half of verse 19, we'll see the activity of sanctification, And then we close with considering the beginning of verse 19 with the appropriate analogy for sanctification. So one more time, in verses 15 through 16, the analogy. In verses 17 through 18, the agent. The end of verse 19, the activity. And then the beginning of verse 19, the appropriate analogy. This analogy in verses 15 through 16 we encounter here from the Apostle Paul is an astounding analogy. We begin with verse 15. Look back there in your Bible. Here, the Apostle Paul uses a rhetorical question in order to uncover a wrong inference. So, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Here, Paul is once again posing a question. He began the chapter posing a question. The questions are different, but in so many ways... We could say that they are the same. He is once again answering the question, does the presence of grace encourage sin? In verse 1, look back there. In chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Can we sin so that more grace will come? If grace is at its best when sin is at its worst, then shouldn't we Give ourselves a sin in order to get more grace. And what was the Apostle Paul's answer in the first 11 verses? No, because the believer is united to Christ and through that union, we have died to sin and now we live to God. Now we come to the question again, a little bit different. Having told us in verse 14 that we are no longer under the law, but under grace. Now, is it, can we transgress mean violate the law of God since we are under grace? Paul's answer here is no, because we have a new master. So, in summary, being no longer under the law does not free us from conformity to the law. The Christian is free from the condemnation of breaking God's law, but you are not free from God's moral law being your moral standard. The moral law of God remains the standard, but your relationship to it has changed. Before grace, the law primarily showed you your need for grace. And when under grace, the moral law guides your obedience to your new master. That's what Paul wants us to see here in this section. And we need to see that grace has liberating power. It also has constraining power. And in order to make this point, Paul offers an astounding analogy. Look at verse 16 again. "'Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one whom you obey?' either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, maybe today was your first time reading any part of Romans 6. And if it wasn't your first time, imagine as if it was your first time. Paul is explaining the Christian's freedom from the dominion of sin, and the analogy he chooses to explain that freedom is slavery now in our day? There's, I mean, I could kind of feel it. It's a little, you're thinking, how many times is he going to say slavery in this sermon today, and when is he going to qualify and nuance it and explain? Or maybe you're just thinking, we should cancel this preacher and cancel Paul immediately. There is no way that this could be a helpful analogy. Well, we must deal with the text in its first century context and recognize that throughout human history, there have been different types of slavery. The slavery of first century Greco-Roman world had its problems, to be sure. But we do have to differentiate between the slavery that Paul is speaking about here and the way that slavery functioned as a demonic, evil institution that was race-based, Chattel slavery, the one that was the hallmark of the early American South prior to the Civil War, they're not the same. Sure, there would be some things in common, but there are vast differences. The institution that Paul is referring to is servitude in the ancient world, a servitude that someone could sell themselves into slavery in order to avoid financial ruin. That's how it was primarily operating in Paul's day. So in submitting yourself to slavery and offering yourself on the slave market, you could pay off debts, and then eventually you could be released from that slavery. Now, many of the early Christians were slaves, and that's why Paul gives instructions to slaves and some of his other letters. Some scholars believe that uh, the majority of the ch- those in the church at Rome were either slaves or former slaves. It was a few decades after Paul that the early church father Clement writes about the Christians in Rome, saying that they sold themselves into slavery, and listen to this, and with the price received for themselves, they fed others. Paul uses this analogy because his readers know how slavery works. In their day in the Roman Empire, slavery meant choosing to put yourself into the service of another. And so that's why the Apostle Paul says, present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave. There in verse 16, present means to submit. Paul's point is that everyone is a slave slave to something. More specifically, everyone is a slave to someone. As Bob Dylan once sang, you may be the ambassador to England or France, you may like to gamble, you may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world, you may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. Or quite simply, as William Hendrickson put it, no man is his own boss. There's no third way between slavery to sin or slavery to obedience. It is one or the other. Now imagine we're back in ancient Rome and you see a slave. And you go to that slave and you ask them, who is your master? Well, they can give you an answer. But if you stuck around long enough to observe the slave, you wouldn't have to ask the question. It would become apparent who their master is. Whoever they obey, that is their master. Obedience to God is what marks those under grace. We can claim to be under grace, but if we live as a slave to sin is that claim nullified? You can claim to be under grace, but if you're living, dominated to the slavery of sin, is that claim nullified? We each have a master to choose to serve. And here there are two masters and two rewards. What is the reward of obedience? Well, here, the reward of serving obedience to God's command results in righteousness. Now, Paul is not saying that salvation is earned through obedience. Again, remember from last week, you can go check it out, it is not legal righteousness that Paul is addressing here so much in Romans 6 as he is referring to moral righteousness. Legal righteousness, if you would, is Romans 3, 4, 5. Now he's talking about the moral reformation that happens as a result of being united to Christ. He's not saying that obedience leads to justification. He's saying that it is through grace-empowered obedience that our reward is that our character is becoming more and more righteous. The Spirit is doing a renovation work in our lives, and we resemble more and more like Jesus, and that is a reward And a blessed reward that even we get a taste of in this life. Though never complete, but more and more we know that reward. But there's also the reward that comes from the other master. If you serve sin, what is sin's reward? It is eternal death. This is something we must be clear on. Because the enemy is constantly trying to tell you and I, that sin has a different reward. That if we throw off constraints, that if we throw off the law of God, that the reward is liberty and freedom. In the garden, this is what the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with. Throwing off God's command would lead to a better life. But he lied. It led to bondage and slavery to a cruel master. Sin promises abundant life and freedom, but it is a lie. So if you are not a Christian here today, it's not a matter of whether you're willing to give up your freedom to serve God. It's recognizing that you're already serving sin. And the question is, will you serve sin or God? Sin promises life and freedom, but it delivers death. This is... Paul, in a sense, echoing what Jesus taught. John 8, 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now part of the lie of the enemy is that you can indulge in sin without receiving its full sense, That you can re- indulge in sin without receiving its full reward that its compensation is, is necessarily, you can kind of pull back and, and, and avoid it. You know, there's these stories about people who think it's cute and fun to get large cats when they're baby cats and bring them into their home. But what happens? Well, too often in those stories, you bring in a baby Bengal tiger and eventually it grows up and... It turns on its master. You could bring the baby bagel tiger into your home, and others may warn you that it's going to grow up into a killing machine because that's what it is. But you believe the lie that you can domesticate it. And while it's young, it seems possible. But it grows. It eats more and more. Its appetite increases more and more until the day it consumes you. Serving sin leads to death. And each of us need to give an honest account of our heart and lives and say, which master am I serving? And say, how can we be released from the service of sin? Well, Paul reminds us of that in verses 17 through 18. So let's look at the agent of sanctification in verses 17 through 18. There it says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Now, we keep using the word sanctification, and the word doesn't actually appear here until verse 19, but the theme of sanctification is the theme of the chapter. It's a concept that is rooted in the Old Testament. It means to be, in the old covenant, to be set apart for holy service. The priest and the tabernacle were set apart for service to God. And so now we see how the concept is carried forward into the Christian life. The Christian has been set apart by God for holiness. So how does the Christian leave the slavery of sin and be one who is set apart for holiness? What we see in verses 17 through 18 is that it's God's doing. I use the the wording of the agent of sanctification. That's taken from John Murray's book, uh, Redemption, Accomplished, and Applied, in his uh, wonderful chapter on sanctification. There's a section on the agent of sanctification. It is God. That's what Paul's reminding us here. Now, many of us may think that God is the agent of justification, meaning he's the one responsible for justification, and The Christian is the agent of sanctification. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Here what we're given in Romans is not just the good news of justification from God, but it is the good news of sanctification from God. So let's see it in the text. Look back at verse 17, the first phrase. But thanks be to God. Here, this is Paul signaling A reversal of a desperate situation. He uses this term in other places in his letters. And every time, it is a hopeless situation, and then, but God. It's giving thanks to God for doing something only he can accomplish. And in verses 17 to 18, he's laying this out for us. We can notice it in the construction of the verbal phrases, both in 17 and 18. They're in the passive. Have become obedient from the heart, were committed. Having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. What Paul is talking about here is not your activity, but God's activity. What he has done for and done to the Christian. So, what has God done? In verse 18, it's the, the language of transfer. It is God who transfers the Christian from the old master to the new master. And then in verse 17, he says that what God has done is that he has given us new hearts. How did he say it? He says that well, we become obedient from the heart. The prophet Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we say, amen. We know that. But God has given the believer a new heart. And so Jeremiah says that in the new covenant, this is the work that God will do. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. More specifically in mind, Paul has in mind what the prophet Ezekiel says. Where in chapter 36, Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And listen here, the last phrase. And be careful to obey my rules. See, the kind of obedience that God demands is not merely external, superficial obedience. It's obedience from the heart. But obedience from the heart comes from the heart that God supplies. The new heart. This is reminding the Christian that Any of us, if we're to live the Christian life, it begins with God bringing us from death to life. We must be born again. God must regenerate dead spiritual hearts and give new life. And we notice what comes with the new heart. He says that we are committed to a standard of teaching. What is a standard of teaching? Well, in summary, it could be all of that God has revealed and preserved for us in his word. But notice, it is not a command to commit yourself to the teaching, though you are to do that. But here, the point is that you've been committed to a standard of teaching. This is the understanding that God has rescued you from being under what the world teaches about life and satisfaction and reality and has placed you under the authority of his word. All Christians are placed under this standard of teaching. We were to see this standard of teaching as more than just the commands of Scripture. It is the very story of Scripture itself that God has reoriented the believer to. It's a new narrative for your life. You are to view all of life in light of God's redemption. Your backstory was one of living in sin and placing yourself and your desires at the center of the story that used to be your story. Now God has committed you to a new story, the story that is about his son and his redemption. Being reminded of what God has done for us, for our sanctification, it also calls us to faith, to believe this. It is the role of faith, believing what God has done for you, Christian, and then viewing your everyday existence according to that meta-narrative that scripture is given. Then in verse 19, the second half, we see the activity of sanctification. Look back at that verse 19 with me again. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Here the commands match those that are found earlier in Romans chapter 6 verse 13. But once again it's highlighting and bringing out this dynamic in sanctification. The dynamic of servitude to a master. There is submission and then progress. So you present yourself either to slaves of impurity resulting in lawlessness, slaves to impurity and lawlessness resulting in more lawlessness, or you present yourselves to slaves of righteousness leading to sanctification. Sin progresses. It is the tiger growing in the kitchen. It is the case that also we see here that sins feed into other sins. Pride and laziness... Aren't those two things that also so often lie behind so many of our besetting sins? But here also we're told that sanctification progresses. It may be slow, and it may be slower than a snail's pace, but it will progress. So here we see, God is the agent, but in our presenting ourselves for obedience, we are active. God is the agent, we are active. He has done, so therefore we present ourselves. Richard Gaffin's very helpful in this, he points out that there's a mysterious math when it comes to sanctification. That sometimes we are prone to think that maybe sanctification is 80% me and 20% God. Or maybe it's 90% God, 10% me, and you could figure out whatever Ratio uh, for sanctification in your mind, and he says, "No, what we see in Scripture between the indicatives and the imperatives that sanctification is a hundred percent God and a hundred percent the believer, and so it's mysterious math. It's hundred percent plus hundred percent equals a hundred percent, but we are active, and so though while we." Do not take credit and we are not the source and we are not in and of ourselves apart from our union with Christ and the work of the Spirit, capable of sanctification. When the Spirit is working in our life, it looks like activity on our part and effort on our part and not passivity on our part. So two encouragements from here. Don't give up when you become more aware of the presence of sin in your life. The more you progress in righteousness and sanctification, the more you live in the light, the more you're going to see what was once hidden in the darkness. That helps us understand why that later in ministry, the Apostle Paul would still refer to himself as the chief of sinners. That as he grew more like Christ, he was More aware of the remaining presence of sin that he was fighting. The more he grew in sanctification, the more he saw his need for grace. So don't give up when you become more aware of the presence of sin in your life. That's part of the road of sanctification. The second encouragement is don't give up when the progress in sanctification is slow. See, it's in our new birth. It's in regeneration that God has sovereignly supplied everything required for our obedience. And you may say, that's wonderful, but why do I still sin then? Does that mean that I haven't been born again? Well, the Westminster Larger Catechism is very helpful when it's talking about sanctification in question 75. And it explains this in this way. Listen, having the seed's of repentance unto life, and all other saving graces put into their hearts. And though graces so stirred up, increase and strengthened, as that they more and more die unto sin and rise unto newness of life. That main concept. You have everything you need from the time you come to Christ to live a holy life, but it comes to you in seed form to be cultivated, to be grown, to progress in. You are a new covenant believer. The new covenant is inaugurated in your heart, but it hasn't met its full consummation and glorification. That is still to come. So, you have the fruit of the Spirit, and it is to be cultivated. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. A couple years ago, one of my children uh, was struggling one day, and um, she had been learning. Oh, well, I just identified which one. But uh, <laughs> one of them had been learning in Sunday school about the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, my wife said, you need to, you need to exercise patience. And the response was, I didn't learn about patience yet. That's next week. <laughs> and the truth is that everything we need was given to us at our new birth. And so therefore, we continually over and over again present ourselves to our new master. Now let's look back at the beginning in verse 19 again, the first phrase. Here we have the appropriate analogy for sanctification But I want us to close on understanding that, while appropriate, this whole slave-master analogy is limited. Paul says as much, verse 19, the beginning, I'm speaking in human terms because of of your natural limitations. Our human nature has its limitations. We need analogies to grasp spiritual truth. Jesus used parables to help his disciples understand. In a similar way, Paul here is using the analogy of slavery. Now, some would say here is his apology for the analogy, but that's anachronistic. He's not making an apology. He's he's affirming this is an appropriate analogy. He is not giving, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I have to use this. No, it's It's a true analogy. You must understand that you are under a new master, and your new master demands full and complete obedience. Total obedience. And so it is a true analogy. But it is a limited analogy. That's part of the limitations of the analogy. What is he concerned about? He's concerned that you would think of God as a master the way that we saw evil masters throughout human history. That their harsh behavior and treatment of their servants and their slaves, you would read into your relationship with God. It's not the case. It's a wrong view of God that he wants us to be careful not to push the analogy too far. Think about it. Even from the very beginning, during the, the creation, while man is under the covenant of works, consider the goodness of God's commands. He creates Adam and says, Here is my world, take dominion of it. Adam, here is your helper. Here's your companion. Here's the one who is to serve with you in the charge that I've given you. So I'm commanding you to marry her and to reproduce with her. I'm commanding you to be my image in the world. I'm forbidding you from eating from one tree and all the rest of these good, blessed commandments. Take dominion, marry. Reproduce. Oh, and Adam, don't work every day. Every week, take a day off for rest. Take a day off to enjoy me and to enjoy my creation. The equivalent of seven weeks of vacation every year, mandated, commanded by God from the very beginning. If this is how good the master is under the Covenant of works, how good is he under the covenant of grace? We're not to see God as a harsh master, but a wonderful, blessed, thoroughly good master. But also, the analogy is limited because we might have a wrong view of ourselves. Going back to Jesus' parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal, the prodigal hired himself out. It's a picture he's entered into slavery. He sold himself. And when he comes back, he just wants to be a servant. And the father says, No, you must be a son. The father won't have it. The father receives him back as a son. It's a limited analogy because we cannot forget the way that God views the redeemed sinner as his own child. And so if we're half-decent parents, when we demand full and total obedience of our children, we're doing it for their good and for their growth. How much more when our Heavenly Father demands our obedience is doing it for our good and for our growth? And if we as trying to aspire to be parents like our Heavenly Father is, are merciful to our children when they stumble forward on the path of obedience, how much more is your Heavenly Father, dear saint? If we are willing to supply what is necessary for obedience, how much more does... Your heavenly Father, supply what you need for obedience. He did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Here is the great encouragement in your battle against sin. Your new master supplies everything you need for the battle. Here is the great encouragement. That your new master and your battle against sin is for you. And if he is for you, who can be against you? Amen. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Lord, we stand amazed by your grace. And we receive it because we need it. And we ask that by your grace, it would do that constraining, restraining work in our life, that we no longer present our instruments, ourselves to the service of sin, but we present ourselves to obedience resulting in growing sanctification and righteousness. We give thanks to you this morning for what you are doing in our lives, knowing that you who began a good work in us will complete it. Our hope is not in our activity. Our hope is not in the means of sanctification. It is in the one who sanctifies and is sanctifying us now. And it's in Jesus' name we give thanks and pray. Amen.